Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Alethea Mills, nutritionist. It's taken a while to get this session in the diary, but it's one I've really wanted to record because I'm fascinated to learn more about how to to optimize my mind and body through my own nutrition. And I definitely feel uneducated in this, which seems wrong given my interest in sport. So I'm looking forward to learning a little bit more from you today. And as you've written, the internet is awash with advice and nutrition advice, some of which good and much of it not. So let's cut through the nonsense and welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. It has been, yeah, it's been a few weeks or months really coming, but absolute pleasure to be here and chat with you today. And I think that plays to how busy your diary is. And one of the things I'd like to get into as we go through this conversation is who would who would typically engage you and, and why? But perhaps before we ask that question, I'm really interested in your journey into nutrition because I was reading on mm. your website that there were a number of triggers that made you reflect on, on your lifestyle and your health and made you focus more on that scientific approach. Yeah. So it started for me, I didn't live the healthiest of teenage years. I grew up in the 70s where it was very much sort of the white bread <laughs> era um and then over time I had a few health issues from initially it started on and off I had chronic tonsillitis as a teenager ended up on antibiotics long term I was almost on antibiotics for a year um at the time didn't think too much of it had my tonsils out and that was sort of the beginning a lot of my gut issues that I had And that over time played out into mental health issues. Um, I struggled quite a lot with anxiety in my early 20s and 30s, um, coupled with iron deficiency anemia. So I had quite a bit going on. But I transferred from very standard diet, including meat, ended up going vegetarian, didn't do it in a healthy way and ended up iron deficient. So along with that came a lot of shortness of breath, dizziness, fatigue, a lot of symptoms that I was being treated for anxiety for. Um, And then I ended up going in and seeing a doctor. I was given an iron infusion. I was put on iron tablets, but nothing was really fixing what I was feeling. And so I started researching a lot into the field of nutrition and how I could help my health with my diet, how I could help. I started learning about the gut microbiome and the impact of mental health and anxiety, and also how I could support the my iron levels purely through diet. So it started out as just a bit of research for me. And then I changed a lot of those things in my life and felt this immediate change in my energy levels, my ability to run and exercise, my mood. And that led me then into wanting to study a bit further and being able to help other people. So I was working in hospitality at the time, doing all the sorts of things that we were doing in hospitality and traveling and working. And then I started studying part-time, doing a Bachelor of Health Science in Nutrition and Dietetics. Um, did that uh, part-time for quite a few years and then full-time and then it became a real passion of mine to help people from there. 
brilliant. And that lived experience, quite a lot of people go through those transformations and then mm. and then they've they've earned the right and they've earned that that knowledge to take it to, you know, become a passion and then a career and, and then they're helping other people. Definitely. Because I think without that, you become very book smart and textbook smart. But without that experience, it's hard to have the empathy for people going through a similar thing. And the change was so prominent. And I distinctly remember that change in how I felt. And I thought it really was quite simple in what you had to do. It took effort, but it was simple. And I thought if I can help other people do that as well and feel better living their lives, then I thought what a great what a great way to live and what a great job to have. So you mentioned there at the beginning you were on antibiotics for a year and then you subsequently talked about the, the gut biome. Mm. So what must a year of antibiotics done to, to your gut? And this is an area that's only really getting more understood recently. Mm. It is. It would have been really fascinating to know what my microbiome and what that picture looked like before the antibiotics. Um, with antibiotics, it would have, I, I know what it looks like now or what it looks like prior to doing a lot of work. And I always think they're looking at the microbiome as a picture, it should be very lush and like the Amazon jungle. There's lots of species in there and everything's thriving. And mine was very much like a desert. There was nothing happening in there. Um, and then over time, I've worked on that, obviously, to build that back up to looking more like the Amazon jungle. But a lot of species were killed off in that time and some don't grow back either. So quite a huge impact having that year of antibiotics. Definitely. And as wonderful as antibiotics are, and they are, and they've, they've you know, eradicated a lot of illness and they keep people healthy, they do Definitely. damage the, the biome. And, and what else does as well? Because the, the way we choose to live in this day and age, that can have an impact mm. on your biome. Yeah. There's so many factors that impact the gut microbiome. And like we were saying with antibiotics, they absolutely have their place and are essential for many um, illnesses, but they do impact. So alcohol is a big impact on the gut microbiome. Um, pharmaceuticals, even though we do need them for certain diseases and conditions, they impact the gut microbiome. Diet, huge, huge factor in there as well. So if we're not eating enough plant foods, that will impact the gut microbiome. If we eat just purely high protein, even though there's a lot of benefits for protein, that changes the diversity in the gut microbiome as well. Stress uh, is a big factor. Um, there, there are so many factors that we have, environmental exposures to toxins. So things like chlorine in the water will impact the microbiome too. So working through good quality water and diet is something that I really focus on with clients. Yeah, it sounds like there's a wealth of, of things that can cause an impact. And mm. is there is there almost a pyramid of, of things at the top that have the biggest impact and then, you know, other things that we should be aware of and perhaps should try and influence but aren't quite as big of an impact? Yeah. So I know I keep coming back to antibiotics there, but antibiotics is one of the biggest ones that will impact in a negative way, purely because if we look at antibiotics as they're coming in to take out a bacteria that's that's in there, a bacterial infection. 
But what it does, it's not selective in how it works. So it'll come in and just bomb the site, essentially. So it kills off what we want gone, but it also has a negative impact on the beneficial bacteria as well. Um, but if we look at the more positive way of things that impact, so fibres and plant foods, probiotics and prebiotics are the foods that really benefit the gut microbiome, but antibiotics would be at the top there of the negative effect. And are there are there particular foods that are uh, a fantastic way of regenerating that microbiome? Yeah, definitely. So with the there's fiber is what they feed on essentially. So you're going to get most of that from your plant foods. So the guide is usually to have forty plus plant foods per week to feed the microbiome. There is no research as yet as to what the optimal microbiome is. There's there's lots of study happening, but they've come to around the 40 plus plant foods, which sounds really overwhelming. Um, but when you look at all plant foods, so it's vegetables, fruit, seeds, nuts, grains, all different colours as well. So things like if we were eating capsicums, if you were having red, yellow and green, that would have three of your plant foods already included there. So with the microbiome, it's about having enough of the beneficial bacteria in there, but also about diversity of that bacteria as well. So if we eat the same food day in, day out, we're going to be feeding the same gut bugs day in, day out. So we can end up with a lot of one species in there and we don't have the diversity. So that's where all the different colours and I often use a, a term of eating the rainbow where it's lots of different colours on the plate. As colourful as you can make it, we'll be feeding that gut microbiome. So fibres and plant foods, um, what we talk about is resistant starch is really helpful for the gut as well. So where we get resistant starch from is things like if we have cooked potatoes that are then cooled. So the starch um, chain actually breaks down in the cooking and rebuilds again with the cooling. And so that gives us a resistant starch, meaning it moves through the digestive tract but it's resistant to that breakdown. So it actually gets to the microbiome in the colon and builds a healthy microbiome. So being a runner too, that's a really good one for the long run. So those cold potatoes, getting your carbohydrates and that fiber in there as well. So fiber, resistant starch, lots of our foods known as polyphenols. So if we think of the things like the purples and red foods, like blueberries in there, all of your um, strawberries, raspberries, olives, those foods are really helpful for the gut microbiome and to build it back up again. I've read about that yesterday's potatoes thing before and is the same true of, of rice as well? Yes, it is. So have it all for oats as well. So it just changes that that structure Potatoes is yeah, one of the easiest ones to digest, so it's used quite frequently, but it is the same as rice. So if you had a warm rice dish, you can save the rice and make a rice pudding for breakfast with some eggs and cinnamon, a bit of milk in there, and that's a really great one for resistant starch. And, and oats as well. So would you cook cook oats like you'd cook a normal porridge one day? Like a and, porridge, yeah. And then have it refrigerated, some... maybe overnight oats with some fruit in the next day? 
Yeah, so the overnight oats, you can just put some milk in or like plant-based milk and let that set overnight. Um, some people do have the porridge. I'm not a big fan of the porridge and then having that cold. Definitely would go for the rice pudding um, or the cold potatoes. So even having the boiling the new potatoes, once they're cool, adding a little bit of olive oil, shallot, salt and pepper, and then you've got resistant starch there to feed the gut microbiome. That's a tasty way of, of helping my gut, and I'm liking the idea with that. What you mentioned earlier on is this, you know, 40 plant foods, and presumably that's 40 mm. different plant foods in, in a week. So that sounds really overwhelming to, to me. And, and I guess this is because one of my questions was going to be, what would be a typical client of a nutritionist? And it sounds like it's me because I'm going, well, how, how on earth am I going to plan a menu and, and get the ingredients in and do this in a manageable way that means my fridge isn't overflowing with a thousand different things? Because mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, I know I should have fiber and I know I should have protein, but I actually couldn't tell you how many grams of fiber are in a thing that I might choose to eat. Yeah. So it is mm -hmm. overwhelming, and I guess that's when I would come to you and say, here's my goals, where do I this start? This is what I want to, yeah. And that's everyone that comes is, I think, with, in the world of nutrition, there's all different interests and passions that we have. Mine's always been around running predominantly. Um, but with that, all runners will come to me. All I have, probably I would say I've got 70% of my clients are runners, and athletes, 30% aren't, but all have very different goals. So there'll be runners that come to me that have got a specific event that are about event nutrition and race nutrition. But most of the time, there's all these other goals around that. They might be having a lot of gut issues either at the event or they're finding it hard to get all of those healthful foods in while they're in their off season and building their health. It could be mental health it branches out into so many areas. But most of mine will tend to be gut issues that I do work with alongside the athletes and the race nutrition. And you mentioned the the long runs and how cold potatoes would be good for that. And I think you've you've written about this on online before and myself and my sister and her partner, we call it a code brown. Uh, and, and long runs can be quite dangerous for runners. But what's the phenomena that's happening there? With the code brown. With the code brown. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps that's we leave it there and we don't say any more. Yeah. <laughs> so look, a lot of the time, and I I would, oh, you so many. I clearly remember one of my clients came to me for that reason, and particularly for trail runners because you don't have access to bathrooms like you do True. on the road as well. So it becomes then a nervous system factor. It builds a lot of anxiety about races and training if they are having those issues. So a lot of the time if someone's gut isn't functioning well in their everyday life, and predominantly I talk a lot about bowels in my session, so I'm going to talk about it here as well. But a lot of those with my clients, if they're finding that they are more constipated in their day-to-day -day life, once they're out on that run and the sympathetic nervous system, so that stress response kicks in, a lot of the time the bowels will release. So they're finding they'll be fine, they'll get four or five Ks into a run, they're warming up and then they need to go. So we do a lot of work outside of training and outside of races in building their gut 
ensuring that their bowels are functioning well and that their microbiome is healthy. And then they can go into the runs, their training runs and races and not have those bowel issues. So that's that's one thing that happens. Um, secondly, it can be a very high stress response. So if the heart rate is raised quite rapidly in the start of a run, that cortisol and stress response will disrupt the bowel. But generally, if you've got a well-functioning bowel and it's emptied daily and regularly, when you're out on the run, it's generally not too much of an issue. Um, talking about long runs and gels and fuel, we do do a lot of practice, particularly with Ironman athletes and the marathon runners and ultra runners, a lot of training with their gut, with what sort of fuel they're going to be using at the time. Hydration as well. So I always run through sweat testing with all of my athletes to make sure that we've got their hydration right, their electrolyte levels right, and that their gut is actually trained for the fuel that they're about to take on. So if they end up taking on too much glucose, you can get a high percentage of glucose in the gut, which causes all of those issues as well. So it's a bit of a multi-pronged approach. So depending on the client, we'll do a lot of research into what's happening with their bowel, their gut history, their diet, their nervous system to figure out what's happening for them. And it sounds like the secret when it comes to those runs is it, it's all in the prep and understanding what's going to happen before. And I'm notorious in my family for not not prepping for runs. And I did the <laughs> I did the coastal high crunch two two weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago, whenever it was. Oh, how did you go? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, it was the second time I've done it, and I and I did really enjoy it. It's a fantastic circuit. It, you know, it's mm. a, it's really good coming down from Binnaburra and then back up through Springbrook. But it's a really tough one, and I did okay. I think I was about ten minutes slower this year than last year but I didn't do any prep on what I was going to eat and the day you know the week before I thought oh, I should you know I should cook something that's a bit more nutritious and maybe make some granola bars and things like this and I ended up not doing it and the night before I was looking through my drawer and I was pulling out gels that I'd got for my birthday and this that and the other so I spent <laughs> the bulk of that race on on gels and I had the bananas and things at the aid stations and and I didn't feel well afterwards. And I didn't feel well after the one I did last year. And I never have gels at any other time in the year. You know, it's only mm-hmm. only a, a run of that magnitude that would make me uh, e- even eat. Do you, you know, because I can do a half marathon without eating at, at a sort of fairly relaxed pace, and, and I'm okay with that. But anything above, and I, and I need to eat. And then I have the gels, and I don't think they work well with me. Or maybe I'm just not used to having them. Yeah. So with um with a lot of the gels too, depending on the brand, is so a lot of them will be made up with glucose, fructose, maltodextrin. So they've all got all different percentages of those. And um, so the reason you've probably done a bit of research into this anyway, but you if you have glucose alone, there's only so much the cells can take in at any one time and then they become saturated. So that can make you feel quite ill if you have a lot of glucose. So a lot of the time the gels will have glucose, um, fructose and maltodextrin. So you can use different channels of the cells. So you can still get just as much energy without the impact. However, in saying that, some people are quite sensitive to fructose and it can make them feel quite sick. So depending on the brand, it also depends on hydration. So how much water 
you were having. So essentially for every gel, this is roughly for each gel, you should be having about 250 mils of water to stop that glucose solution getting above 8% in the gut. So it's quite, depending on what you are having on the day, um, that, that can have quite a bit of an impact as well. It wasn't too hot on the day. Heat can have an impact as well, but Coastal Crunch was actually it was quite cool, but then pleasant throughout the day. So heat can have a real impact on nausea as well and electrolyte balance. Um, what were you using? I think it was the Fix Nutrition Gels because because I hadn't done any prep, it was the free ones from the aid station. And, and I did yeah. have one of the cramp fix ones as well, which I know has got the vinegar in, but I was pretty careful with that. So it's predominantly mm-hmm. the fix ones. Um, I, I might have had one or two other things in my backpack as well, which I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting to delve into that more, just of what you were yeah having before and eating before and leading up. So a lot of that can really impact. When you're saying you weren't feeling well, was it nausea or what were you generally feeling mainly mainly gut gut discomfort Mm -hmm. the day after and and possibly the whole week after you know it takes me a while to to feel on top form yep and the year before was even worse and the year before Mm. so a lot of them if that's happening after it's quite likely a lot of inflammation in the gut whether that is from the gels that high sugar that you're not used to having in the diet, but that can be quite an inflammatory response going through as great as exercise is. It does have a stress response in our body. So it can be coming down from that and also the diet post run as well. So that's something I focus a lot on with all of my clients is what they're having immediately after the run within the two to four hours after as well so that 24 to 48 hours post run a lot of the time people will get to race day and it's all celebrations it's like right we're done and then all of the planning and eating well goes out the window whereas that time after the race is just as important if not more important for the recovery to be able to head straight back into the running injury free and allow things like your main organs like your digestive system to recover because it is it is quite an impact on your body run you know running for absolutely you know, two hours three hours four hours it, I guess you've got to be really careful with it, with how you manage it mm. and I think it's one of those well, I was talking about this to friends during the week and was saying when you're surrounded by people who are doing these runs and epic runs and ultra runs and all of these things all the time it becomes very normal and we forget the impact of what that does to our body and the huge stress it puts on our body. And we are designed very well to cope with stress and then recover. And we're quite, that's how we build our resilience. But the impact of doing a run like that is huge. And so we do have to put a lot of effort into the recovery and nurture our bodies and Things like even with just general training, I'll always get my athletes to make sure they're having carbohydrate and protein immediately after their training because carbohydrate blunts the cortisol response from the run. So it just helps bring the nervous system 
back down after those training runs. So it's good for us to experience that stress, but then we need to know how to recover and help the body post runs or events such as that as well. And what would be your carb of choice after a a running event? So for me, I personally struggle a bit with solid food immediately after running. Some people love to eat straight away, but mine's a smoothie. And I always like a little bit of protein powder in there, banana. I'll put some dates in there, ice and filtered water. And that will will be mine as I go through. That's post-run. I just find that easy to take in. I can digest it well and I know that I can get the amount of carbohydrate and protein in. Um, But otherwise, if people are up for food, depending on what sort of food they usually have, but something like oats or porridge in there is really great. That's a good one to have if it's breakfast time or just going straight into having your lunch or dinner. If you're training middle of the day or afternoon, you can just have your meal as you normally do but just not leaving it that sort of hour or two post run because then the body will start to actually utilize the muscle to gain nutrients and protein. So it's just important to have that, that meal post running session. So no matter what your goals are, fitness, weight loss, whatever they are, you do need to be eating after your exercise. Absolutely. And even with weight loss, which is a really good point, a lot of people will feel like they just need to eat less and less. But post training is when we are most insulin sensitive. So with that, what I mean, when we eat carbohydrates, it breaks down into glucose, which is in our bloodstream. Our pancreas, which is an organ in our body, releases insulin, which most of us think about with diabetics. That's where our insulin seems to pop up. But the pancreas releases insulin. It grabs onto that glucose that's in the blood and transports it into our cells for energy. So post-exercise, our blood sugar will be lower. So we eat carbohydrate. It calms the cortisol, the stress response, And our cells are sensitive to insulin. So insulin can just push that glucose into the cells for energy rather than storing it as fat. So for weight loss, it's one of the best times to have our carbohydrates is post-exercise. That's worth knowing. And I guess we have to be careful of what carbohydrates we choose. And perhaps it's not always cake and it's something a little bit more nutritious. <laughs> and it is. It's really, I think, and I, it's, it is something to be very mindful of because a lot of the time when people think carbohydrates, their immediate thing is they'll think bread, pasta uh, and cakes and desserts. Whereas carbohydrates are predominantly most of the vegetables. So, but the really, the higher carbohydrate vegetables, things like potato, sweet potato, pumpkin are really great. You've got oats in there, whole grains. So things such as your rice, your quinoa, these are all your carbohydrates as well. So they're, the others are more the refined carbohydrates, which we tend, they're not, I'm not the sort of nutritionist that talks about good and bad foods. There's definitely foods that are more beneficial for health. And there's foods that are better for sometimes, the the every now and then foods. But yeah, so after something like bananas and dates down that fruit, they're really high carbohydrate and will refuel rapidly. But you're getting a lot of the micronutrients as well. So having a banana, you're looking, you're getting some good potassium in there, you're getting fiber plus your carbohydrates. Whereas if we just went in 
and had a soft drink or things like our gels. It's just pure carbohydrate. We don't have a lot of those other vitamins and minerals in those. So yes, it is definitely the type of carbohydrate will help. <laughs> and those carbohydrates, you know, they're, they're not untasty. They're nice carbohydrates, bananas, dates, you know, even the rices. Yeah, delicious, I think. And the less you have of the refined carbohydrates, the better those other ones taste as well. <laughs> that is very true. You mentioned sweat test earlier on. And I think I think when I'm on a big run, and certainly that coastal one, I hydrate pretty well. I probably had close to three liters, but I would class myself as a sweater. And, sweater, and, I, and yeah. I can also have headaches after big, big exercise mm -hmm. like that, which is possibly an electrolytes thing. So if I yeah. was one of your client and you said, let's do a sweat test, what does that look like? Yeah. So you can go into labs and do it under <laughs> all the all the conditions there. One of the most accurate ways you can do yourself, which has been shown to be in around 98% accuracy, which is a pretty good way to be able to do it. So you get up in the morning. So you go to the toilet, weigh yourself naked, then you head out for a run. So generally I get people to do an hour. Um, ideally at race pace, if that's where you're at. So we can, this is if we were doing race nutrition, um, go out for the hour. If you take any water on board through that time, we need to know exactly how much. So generally, if people are comfortable, it's cooler weather and they're not taking any water on, you go run for the hour, come back home, towel yourself off, get naked again, jump on the scales and you look at the weight difference there. So for example, if you'd lost 700 grams over that hour, that would be a 700 mil that we'd be looking at replacing. So with the hydration, we don't always hit 100% of what we lose, but it gives us a really good guide as to where we should be. And it's what's interesting about it is it's, it's not reflective of body size, male, female. It is so varied what people will have. I've had some quite petite female athletes that are losing 1.1 an hour. And then I've got larger men who are losing 500. So it's really, and why with race nutrition, it's so important is we can be overhydrating throughout that race or completely underhydrating. So either of those aren't ideal in that circumstance. So it really gives us a great place to be able to see what we should be taking on board. And when we talk about training the gut, we train that with all of the gels and the fuel, but we also train the gut with hydration as well. A lot of the time we, we're not used to taking that amount of fluid on while we are running. So it does take some practice leading up to an event. And that sounds like a really easy thing to do, that that sweat test. So I, so I made a mental yeah. note, I'm going to do that because I'm really interested to see, to see what I lose. You talk about overhydration. What's the impact of that if we're taking on too much fluid? So with that, again, digestive issues, it can also affect your electrolyte levels. So with the um, digestive issues, it'll start to get a lot of there's that sloshing and gurgling in the gut. You won't be able to take on the glucose from the gels as well. That will be flushing through and your electrolyte levels will be out. So a lot of that will could be nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. 
So not not great places in there to be. Um, and under hydration or dehydration, that can start to affect just mental capacity to make decisions in the run. Everything starts to feel a lot harder than it should, frustrating, and, of course, electrolyte and then gut issues too. So it doesn't need to be spot on, but if you've got a good idea of where you need to be, um, things as well with hydration, just when we were talking about that, um, a lot of the time, so heavy sweaters is one. Uh, women I work with a lot in the second half of their menstrual cycle, so in the luteal phase, their electrolyte balance is a little bit out. So uh, hydration and sweat testing, super important for that time as well. And so I've done the sweat test and I've got mm -hmm. an idea as to how much I'm losing. Let's say I'm losing three quarters of a litre in an hour. If I get that right, and I'm so then I'm taking on as much as I need in, a, in an hour and two hour run, that alone won't fix my headaches. So, so what else is happening? So you've mentioned electrolytes. How, how can I manage that situation? So with the electrolytes, you can, so there's a couple of choices that you can have. A lot of the electrolytes will be higher carbohydrate as well. So you can factor that in to how many grams of carbohydrate you need, or you can get low carb. I think it's Endura, Endura do one, which is a low carb electrolyte. You can just pop that in one of your bottles and drink that throughout. So you don't need to have additional water with that fluid. So if you were saying aiming at 700 mil, you can just make up one of the bottles with some electrolyte in there. Do you find that you're a, like the sweat rim on the hat as well? Do you tend to look like you lose a lot of salt? I think so. When when mm. When I'm running and I've got my running hat on, it's soaked through so so i'll yeah but if i'm wearing a hat that i might wear on the street and if i'm going for a long walk on a hot day yeah i definitely do get that salt rim yeah. on the hat so a good thing uh, you can do as well if you know that you've got a run coming up having electrolytes for the couple of days prior is what i'll often get most of my athletes to do that are heavy sweaters or if they're up, so going up to Cairns, doing Ironman up there, I'll have them having electrolytes for those three days prior if we know that they're prone to cramping and heavy sweating and going into that sort of tropical environment. You can do that and then just have lower levels of carbohydrate or carbohydrate electrolyte uh, on the race day as well. So again, going back to the prep, be thinking about, what you're going to do and prepping far in advance with fluids and what you're eating. Yeah, definitely. That week prior so for that taper week is such a great time to use the energy that was previously put into training into nutrition, nutrition and sleep through that week and getting yourself really prepped for the weekend See, things like carbohydrate, I generally don't do carbohydrate loading in the 48 hours prior. What we actually need to take on is a lot of carbohydrate to get to that level. So I usually start a week out with my clients and start to increase carbohydrate. So for that week prior, we still keep them in their energy requirements so they're not gaining weight throughout that week, but we just slowly shift their diet to more carbohydrate 
And then about 48 hours prior, we start dropping the fibre. So that is the time where sports nutrition and naturopathic nutrition cross paths and I start to go in with the more refined carbohydrates where we'll be having white rice and pasta and those sorts of things to get that carbohydrate level up. So when you're taking on all of those carbohydrates, the glycogen levels, so your stored energy in your liver, we're just building those reserves. So on race day, you're starting from a full tank rather than being empty at the start of the race. So carbohydrates is one. Electrolytes, if I do have heavy sweaters, definitely we start those for the three days prior. Um, and hydration throughout that week and sleep is a big one. I've got a lot of athletes that see it as a time they're not training and they just fill their social calendars to catch up with everyone. Um, and I yeah, usually focus to them about just keeping everything quite low key and sleep in that week as well. And the science behind that's becoming clearer and clearer. And, you know, there's a number of notable people on the internet. And perhaps when, when we wrap up this podcast, I'll get your views on, uh, you know, kind of who you can trust out there. But you're seeing much more going, if there's, if there's one thing that you do, if there's one thing only, it's sleep. It is because it's our, it's our healing time for sleep. And I think there's a lot of research now coming out with um, Alzheimer's and dementia. And that's the time where we're clearing all of our amyloid and it's our glymphatic system. So it's time for that to clear. So for cognition, for later in life, our immune system heals in that time. If we're not, if we're not sleeping, we just simply can't be running at our best <laughs> no pun intended there but we can't be we can't be working at our best without sleep it is so incredibly important and something we tend to put to the side when our days get busier and busier and we're doing more and more things sleep gets sort of put to the side until we desperately need it when our body cries out and says <laughs> enough's enough we can tend to injure our mood changes our training is affected so many things can happen, but I'm a big advocate for sleep. <laughs> Absolutely, we need more. So while we're on the theme of running, we mentioned at the beginning that you did the nutrition for Jake Malby, who did 31 yes. marathons in 31 days, 31 days, which is an enormous feat. And I possibly feel that Jake hasn't had enough recognition for that. Um, you know, I think, I think local news and a few running things picked it up, but there must be a very, very small number of people globally that could oh. ever accomplish something like that. So you it, managed all his nutrition for him. Yeah, so I helped him with his nutrition, but it was just, it was phenomenal. I just, when I remember when he came to me and asked me about it and I just thought, wow, this is, this is incredible. And so from a nutrition perspective, it was what he had to take in to be able to fuel those days leading up to it, what needs to be done after. But I think the mental strength to just get up and determination to be able to do that every day. And you're right, it's very minimal, the amount of people that are able to do that or would even sign up to giving that a shot. <laughs> was, but there was never any doubt in his mind that he would do it. He would absolutely do it. But um, it was it was a huge learning curve for me too with nutrition. I'd never supported anyone doing 31 days. I heard help people through with adventure racing. So five-day 
multi-stage events, but yeah, the 31 days was something very different. How many, yeah. and, and I guess, tell me only what you're able to, but how many calories a day would someone like Jake have to consume to maintain that? So he's a relatively slim build. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that his baseline is maybe 1800 calories just to keep the lights on. It was. So from memory, we had him throughout August, it was aiming for 5,000 calories. So, and with that, and this is where sports nutrition and naturopathic went out the window. It was really, I remember saying to him, eat what you can. <laughs> Just if that's, if that's a cake, eat it. It wasn't a time for thriving for that 31 days it was about surviving performing recovering every day and to be able to get that amount of energy in isn't going to be done on whole foods you'd be bloated full you just wouldn't be able to consume that amount so there was only certain strict boundaries that I had with him and one of those was that he had to have it was a smoothie shake that we'd made up he had to have that as soon as he finished so within half an hour of finishing that was something he needed to have and that was it had protein and ribose and carnitine and b vitamins and nutrients that he needed and that was the not negotiable and then he just had to eat every two hours after that. And if he felt hungry within an hour, it was continuing to eat. Um, otherwise, on the run where you mentioned before <laughs> about his bacon roll, it was do what you need to do in that time. He obviously had his gels that he had to take. He had his hydration. Um, and then there were certain foods that we wanted him to have to make sure he was getting enough of the nutrients, but otherwise to get to his 5,000 calories. It was pretty open slather to what he could have in that time. I love the fact that he had that bacon sandwich. And I think his route was somewhere like from Burley to Main Beach and, and back again kind of route. So I think it was the Main Beach Cafe that was doing yes. his bacon roll every every morning. And, yeah. and I thought it was great that he was doing that. So 5,000 a day is is a huge amount of food to be maintaining. And you say you learned a lot through that process. Was there any points in that 31 days where, you know, he picked up the phone to you and he said, he said, I'm struggling a little bit. It's not feeling quite right. And, and were you able to learn and adjust as a consequence of that? Yeah, so it was probably, he was, I mean, he was going great all the way through. He was incredibly dedicated to what he was doing and and I think that's why we kept it also that there were certain things that were not negotiables and the rest were for him to be free in what he did because there was enough for him to cope with in that 31 days so the food he was quite flexible with he did start getting um, some pain about midway through I mean he was uncomfortable every day of course he got some pain in there. We were going to add in some natural anti-inflammatories for him to work with. Um, he was nervous to add anything in throughout the month because everything was working well in the sense he was getting up, he was going again, he was recovering. So we didn't make too many tweaks and changes throughout the plan. Um, some of the foods, he got a bit tired of eating some of the foods, so we'd swap that out. Some days he was feeling more savoury, some days were more sweet. 
but it was quite flexible in the approach. It was more, this is your goal to try and hit these calories every day. Some days were spot on and, other, and others weren't so much. But, um, but no, we didn't make too many tweaks throughout. And what would be a natural anti-inflammatory? Um, curcumin, so yeah. the compound from turmeric. So there's some really, there's some, I mean, there's a, a billion of them out there. So there's a certain few brands that I'll work with that are pharmaceutical grade and quite high dose. So that would be the natural anti-inflammatory there. And we would just, as far as supplements, there wasn't too many in there from, it's going from memory now, um, obviously his drink that he was having. And then we had uh, magnesium, zinc, a few things just to support his immune system in there. But ultimately it was a lot with, uh, with food, just with nutrition. So I'd like to talk about inflammation so so it seems that everywhere i look now on the internet people are talking about inflammation you know and there could be people i trust on the internet and people that i perhaps think are charlatans so people say inflammation's a bad thing inflammation uh, affects your health it affects longevity it affects all, all these things so then i'm thinking to myself what does that really mean inflammation because because you know if you've got a cut on your hand and it becomes inflamed so you think about inflammation in those terms but when it comes to inflammation and people are saying inflammation is bad and this is how you can address it through lifestyle and what you eat. What does that really mean within the body? Mm. So inflammation is actually necessary to some point. So like you're saying, if we're healing, it's part of it. Um, we are inflamed after we go for a run. We have inflammation and that's what triggers the healing of our muscles. So we do need it. I think most of the time when you're hearing it on the internet, they're talking about chronic inflammation, which what that usually will be a picture of is metabolic dysfunction. So it'd be high cholesterol, high blood pressure, high liver markers. If we're looking at inflammation in the gut, it can be food intolerances that are affecting the gut lining and the gut lining is starting to pull apart and become like intestinal permeability, the loosely coined name is leaky gut. That is not a scientific name at all, but um, intestinal permeability. So we can get that inflammatory response. Um, generally, if you are eating a, a diet that is healthful, predominantly whole foods, not drinking to excess, not smoking, exercising at a moderate rate, the body will function well and we're not sitting in an inflammatory state. But inflammation has become one of those words on trend in a lot of, as you're saying, a lot of the podcasts that, that you hear about as well. And everything's about reducing that inflammation. With something like Jake, it was that situation, it was inflammation of joints and muscles. So it's almost just easing, easing that pain in there for him you hear things like neuroinflammation so there's that brain inflammation which is often there when we've got stress on the brain with cognitive decline such as alzheimer's so it's related to a lot of diseases in there where the cells aren't functioning as well as they should so turmeric's a good thing no matter what yeah, turmeric's great. I mean, any of the herbs and spices are wonderful. So supplementing curcumin, which is the compound from turmeric, I wouldn't always recommend as a as a daily thing to be doing. 
But using whole turmeric, garlic, ginger, all of those spices, they're all, they've all got anti-inflammatory compounds in them. So rather than necessarily taking supplements or anti-inflammatory pharmaceuticals, we can gain a lot of that from our diet just through high plant foods, spices and our herbs as well. They all have the anti-inflammatory properties in there. That's brilliant. Now, right at the very beginning, you said you said three things that, that I wrote down. Um, and we've, we've talked a little bit about gut issues. Mm. One of them was iron deficiency. And I was interested to learn a little bit more here because I, I saw a post that you wrote. And it was it was along the lines of when you go to a doctor with an iron problem, they'll quite often test you for this but it's actually mm-hmm. only part of the picture. And I was yeah. interested in understanding that a little bit more because I've been talking to some people recently who say, oh, I think I'm iron deficient and I'm going for an iron infusion and hopefully that might help mm-hmm. with fatigue and things like this, which, which I'm sure it will. And I said to them, there's more to it, but I actually can't tell you what that more to it is. Yeah, absolutely. So what's often tested, there's a difference between having iron studies tested and one factor of it, which is ferritin. So what is often tested is ferritin, which is the stored iron in the liver. So all that does is tell us about what storage there is in the liver. When we look at iron studies, it looks at iron, it looks at transferrin, transferrin saturation and ferritin. So I'll explain what all of those are. So when I look at iron studies for my clients, When I look at the one that says iron, it tells me how much they're having in their diet and how able they are to absorb that through the gut. So if we're looking at a range of zero to 30, if someone's sitting at 17 with their iron, I can tell that their gut is absorbing the iron that they're having. They may be having supplements or iron in their diet, but I can tell that it's there. The ferritin will tell me how much is sitting in their liver as backup reserves. Then we have transferrin. So that's a protein that's in the body. And it's like if we look at the liver as the taxi rank and then our ferritin are people just waiting at the taxi rank to be transported around the body. Then we have transferrin, which is the taxis. And they pick up the people and take the iron around the body to the tissues and deliver the oxygen to those tissues. So transferrin will tell us about the body's actual hunger for iron. So if the body has lots of taxis running around, it tells me that the body has a need for iron. But if there's not many there, the body doesn't necessarily have a big hunger for iron at that time. So, for example, someone might go to the GP, their ferritin might be sitting at 27 to 30, which is the lower end. So they might say an iron infusion would be great. But we don't know whether their body actually has a hunger for iron at that time. So we can load the body with an infusion, really high levels of iron, which impacts the liver. And then what we often see is this big shoot up of iron in the body And then three months later, it's gone. So that actually impacts the liver in a negative way 
and the body can't absorb all of that iron. So we see this yo-yo effect of people going in and out for infusions all the time when they're not required. So that's why I always like to get that full picture. Um, so just going back, so we've had iron, then we've got transferrin, which are our taxis, and then the saturation tells us how much iron is on board those taxis being delivered to all of the tissues. So that's why I like to look at the iron studies. The other things I look at are it's an inflammatory marker, um, which is CRP, C-reactive protein. So that will tell us if there's any inflammation in the body at that time. So if your body, for example, was inflamed when you went in for your testing, it falsely can raise the ferritin, so the stored level of iron. So it can skew the picture a little bit. So I always get the iron studies and the CRP done when we get those. So it sounds like quite often you'll go you'll go to your GP and you'll say you know I've got I've got a bit of fatigue you know I need to I think I might be iron deficient or whatever it is and they'll so they'll do a test and by the sounds of it the majority of GPs are probably doing a ferritin test only so that so that they're not doing the uh, is it a, is it what's the right term is it a fuller blood panel Yeah it's just I full iron studies mm. rather than one marker so um, I'm not. I'm not too sure. I know they used to do iron studies a lot. Not so much anymore. So I'm not too sure where the change has come with that. But yeah, having that whole picture then tells us more about what's actually happening in the body rather than being very symptomatic and looking going, oh, that's a bit low. That stored. Let's just pump you full of iron and see what happens. We can really see what's going on. We can see if there's inflammation. We can look at a full blood count and see how big or small the cells are. Sometimes what can look like an iron deficiency can actually be lower B12 and folate, so some of the B vitamins. So there's many factors that can be impacting what someone would initially think was iron deficiency. And you mentioned about the ability for your, your gut to process the iron in the food. Um, which takes me back to something that I, that I forgot to ask about the gut microbiome. So mm. if I came to you, what would the process be to go, right, let's have a look inside Alistair and actually see what bacteria live there? How do you do that? Yeah. So there's a couple If people come to me, depending on what approach they want. Obviously, there's. I spend an hour with all of my initial clients and it's very detailed case taking. If they came, so if you came to me and you felt you had some gut issues, we would go through a whole case history of your gut from as far back as you can remember, all of your digestion, what you eat, your symptoms, your bowel, go through everything, all of the systems in your body. We'd look at your nervous system. We'd look at your immune health. And then if you wanted to explore further, there are tests that you can do that look at the different bacteria in the gut. There are limits to the test in that they haven't, that they haven't discovered all the species as yet or researched all of them. So it's still relatively early days for those. But I have found with the testing, I have had incredible results with clients from those. So we can look at the beneficial bacteria. We can see if there's any parasites, um, worms or viruses in there. We can have a look at there's inflammation in the gut. There's many factors that we can look at and explore. 
And then treatment would then be depending exactly what was happening in your gut. If you had very low levels of beneficial bacteria, then we would work with that at building that bacteria back up through diet and possibly supplementation, depending on where it was at. It sounds awful, all the things that go on in your gut, but I guess if you're treating it, then you're going you're gonna to benefit yourself and benefit your own health. Yeah. And with, I think, one thing that uh, going back to the microbiome where I noticed was the mood change for me. So there's bacteria in the gut. So the gut-brain axis, what's happening in the gut affects what's happening in the brain. So if the gut microbiome isn't functioning well, it's not diverse, it's not healthy, that can impact mood. So depression and anxiety, our immune function, and the health of our skin, so many factors that it can improve. So once the gut is functioning well, a lot of the other symptoms that people will come and see me about start to just shift and move away without directly treating those symptoms. Yeah, that link between the the gut and the brain, that's something that I'm only becoming aware of is a, is a thing and it can have a real impact mm. on your mental health in terms of how healthy that is. Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's some of the bacteria in the gut that release um, lipopolysaccharides, LPS, and so it can cause an inflammatory response in the brain. And that's then triggered, it's associated with the anxiety and depression. So it's quite phenomenal watching that shift in people's moods by working with their gut. So I've had um, I've had quite a few patients that have been on medication for quite a few years that have been wanting to make that shift and are now off medication and functioning really well. So that's been fantastic to see and just from working with the gut. So when it comes to getting the good bacteria into my gut, how do I know where to start? I've been trying to look up a, a, a book that I was reading, Mental Fitness by Sean Talbot. And, and I'm, I'm doing it on audiobook and I'm only a few chapters in. And in that book, he talks about there's many bacteria. So just going out and throwing good bacteria down your throat might yeah. not necessarily be the answer. So I know that, I think I know through what the gurus on the internet yeah. have told me, that kefir is possibly a really good source of, of good bacteria. And I quite like the taste of it, so I'll buy a bottle and I'll drink some. But I actually have no idea if that's got the bacteria that I need. That so, you need. Yeah. Yeah. So, and 100% when they're saying that about, so putting the bacteria in, and what they mean by that is putting probiotics in. So, probiotics are transient, they will move through the digestive system. So, unless you feed them, they don't just stay there. We can't take probiotics and suddenly go, ah, oh, here we go, we've got a healthy microbiome. We have to feed them the fuel so they can stay in there. And that's where we come back to the fiber, the resistant starch, the polyphenols and all of the plant food. That's what they feed on. So depending on what's happening in someone's gut, if they are very depleted in beneficial bacteria, as I once was, I would absolutely go in with some probiotics and then use nutrition and diet to support that. But probiotics shouldn't be something that we're needing to take long-term or forever. And my idea with supplements is they should be short-term. Unless there's a long-term or chronic condition we're treating, supplements should just be that the person is lacking at that point in time. We're just utilizing them for a short period and then diet 
will take over from there. But using food, so something like the kefir or using uh, miso and fermented foods. So it's using a broad range of all of those foods. So fermented foods do have the bacteria in them. So looking at yogurts that have got the bacteria in them, kefir is great, um, miso, tempeh, um, sauerkrauts and um, making sure with sauerkrauts, there's a great brand, Keho, I think it is, K-E-H-O-E, just in the supermarket, but it's in the fridge section, always getting the ones in the fridge. The ones, the sauerkraut that's sitting on the shelf is more pickled than fermented. So just one of the ones that are in the fridge section is a great way. So getting a lot of those fermented foods in is a really healthy way of getting that bacteria and then making sure the plant foods are in there, which I'm um, not a sales pitch in here. I'm just free doing a plant food challenge coming up in the next two weeks to help people and show them how to get all of those plant foods in. So when you were talking about before, it can feel overwhelming as to how to get all of that in. That's something that I've um, put together that I'm going to be putting out on Instagram. I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, that would be so helpful. And I'm glad you mentioned there about the sauerkraut that's off the shelf and the sauerkraut that's in the fridge because actually I wouldn't have thought about that and I wouldn't have thought, oh, that's pickled and that's fermented. So that's important and useful because I quite like it. And also I think kimchi as well is is, is a fermented one. Yeah. Yeah. I saw a TV show. Well, the TV show I saw was The Healthiest Diets Globally. And and I can tell you that UK, Australia and America were, were not in the top 10. Um, but I think I think Korea might have won The Healthiest Diet. And I think some of the Mediterranean areas were really strong as well. Mm-hmm. But it, predomin- it was put down to a number of things, kind of healthiest people and the way they lived and how they ate and when they ate. But also the fermented kimchi and, the, and they had this whole section on how the families would make it together and then the process of fermenting it. Yeah. It, yeah, and it is. The kimchi is amazing. Sri Lanka is another food I always think about, about feeding the microbiome. We just always vision the little pots of herbs and spices where there are so many ingredients that go into one dish for them. And it's all with that diversity of building the gut microbiome. But kimchi, the sauerkrauts, they're all really great fermented foods. It's interesting you talk about that <clears throat> with the the healthiest foods. And I when you watch them and about the community and the family that comes with it, I think is such a huge part of not just the nutrition, but how it's prepared and enjoyed and the family factor and community that comes in. I think it's always interesting watching those. And that makes me think about not just what you eat, but also how and and when you eat as well. And the how might be a you know a long Mediterranean lunch that might seem a, an extravagant way to do it, but there's an awful lot of pre-digestion happening as well as the eating. And then there's the timings of it. Do you have any particular views around when to eat and, and perhaps even some views on fasting, which is another thing that, that's popular with a lot of people as well? Yeah. So just coming to something you just said then as well with that pre-digestion, something I will often get my clients to do. Most people I work with are quite stressed. They have a lot on. 
So when we are stressed, it blunts our digestive enzymes and our gastric acid. So our digestion doesn't function as well as it should. So before I have any of my clients eat, I'll have them do a minute of diaphragmatic or square breathing. So with the diaphragmatic breathing, it's the really deep belly breathing or the square breathing is breathing in for four, holding for four, out for four, hold for four and get them to do that for a minute. So with diaphragmatic breathing and square breathing, it has been shown to reduce that sympathetic nervous system. So that stress response which then allows for the digestive enzymes and the gastric acid to start to function. So that's a big focus of mine more than when they're eating is more about how they're eating and their state of mind when they are about to have that meal. Um, Also avoiding sitting in front of a screen, working while you're eating away, being a bit more mindful about sitting there. And this is that 10, 15 minutes to sit down and just enjoy the food that's in front of the person. No TVs, sitting there talking with friends is is fantastic, but all the other distractions, even though we don't see them as stresses, we can sit there and be working away and an email pops in, another notification comes up. So the body is responding to all of those stresses all the time, which then affects our digestion and our ability to absorb the nutrients that we're having, where we could be eating the best foods in the world, but if we're not absorbing them and digesting them, it doesn't mean much for us. So about how we eat, a big factor that I talk about. I had no idea that that that, that would, would have been an impact. It makes perfect sense, but it never occurred to me that a stress response would impact how my food was then fueling my body yeah definitely so and that's so that really comes to a lot of people that come to me will have a lot of issues with digestion whether it be bloating or or heartburn and all of these and a lot of the time once we work through just simply how they're eating that can resolve a lot of those issues sitting there and taking the time when that food's in front of you to look at the food, smell the food, think about the food, that starts what's known as the cephalic phase. So that starts the digestive enzymes in our mouth. So our digestion actually starts well before the food hits our gut. So mentally that starts, the enzymes start. We can almost taste the food before we're about to eat it and the saliva starts. And then chewing is another factor. We talk about chewing food to a pace before we swallow it. All of that just allows for digestion to function really well. It sounds like we should be more like dogs because you know that dogs are ready for the food because they want it. Yes, yes. <laughs> and they're sitting there looking at it, sniffing it, just waiting for it to come through. And that's we, we should be taking that time. We've become very rushed in everything we do and food has become another factor of this fast, busy life. So that's a big one there. I'm just um, going back to what you asked about. Yeah, so timings well. oh, wise, we, 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 we typically eat three meals yep. a day and we typically eat the first two in daylight and perhaps the last one in darkness. Mm-hmm. And again, there's multiple different gurus out there now saying, do it this way, do it that way. What, what views do you have around timing? So I, I truly believe we just need to keep it really simple. Eat when the sun's up 
eat before the sun goes down, ideally. Obviously, everyone has very different capabilities of what they can do around that. But the best we can get to that, you give yourself a natural, about a 12-hour natural fast. And then you have breakfast in the morning. So I work with a lot of women who are going through perimenopause at the moment. So fasting is something I am generally not recommending, um, but it has its place. Most of the studies on fasting have been done on men and obese women and postmenopausal women. So for women that are in reproductive years and going through perimenopause, it's not an ideal way to eat. Um, purely because women in the morning, our cortisol, our stress hormone is what wakes us up. So for women, that is slightly higher than men. So our cortisol is already high. When we fast, our cortisol raises again. So we're sitting on high cortisol, then it's going up again. Then a lot of people I work with are then going and training. So then that cortisol is going up again. Then there'll be a coffee <laughs> that's popped in there then they're not eating till later. By that point, their cortisol is quite high and they're struggling to lose weight in that time. So fasting for that demographic is not great. Um, fasting does have some benefits with immune function and white blood cells. It also can be really beneficial with weight loss due to the fact that the eating window is a lot shorter, so you're consuming a lot less calories in that time. Um, I've had a handful of people that I have recommended fasting to, but generally speaking, I find we get much better health benefits without the fasting in there, particularly with athletes who are training. That's something worth considering, definitely. And I didn't, I didn't understand the cortisol response mm -hmm. on a morning, and then how we might be making it worse by training fasted and then remaining yep. fasted for a longer period of time. So, in training fasted, it's something that I often get asked about as well. So, with fasted training, particularly with if you're doing low intensity. You can get away with doing fasted, anything sort of up to an hour of low intensity, if it feels good. For some people, that feels rubbish. If it feels good, it can help a bit with the fat adaptation. Um, but generally, if there's any high intensity or sprint sessions or weightlifting in there, the body utilizes carbohydrate in that time. And it is going to function better having some of that fuel on board. It doesn't need to be much. It can be half a banana or a date before that session. And then the body has the energy. So you tend to then your performance in that session is better. So then your training actually becomes better in the long term. So there's, depending on people's training, I'll adjust what they do with fasted and non-fasted training. I've got a lot to think about now. I think off the back of this conversation, I've got a number of things I can go away and I can think about what I'm eating and how and when. Uh, and certainly pre-running, pre valuable lesson around actually planning what I'm going to do. Um, this has been a great conversation. If somebody wanted to reach out and work with you, uh, perhaps you know, be one of your patients, yeah. how would they get in touch with you? Um, so either on Instagram, Mills underscore nutrition, 
or my website, alethianutrition.net.au will be the best places to get in touch with me. Fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Been fantastic. Thank you. (laughs) 